It's the Real Roots Radio podcast, on-demand content highlighting the best information and entertainment from the Real Roots Radio team. It's Jimmy Rogers Day on the Daniel Mullins Midday Music Spectacular. Uh, This day in 1933, the world said goodbye to the singing brakeman. I am so excited to have uh, the author of one of my favorite Jimmy Rogers books on the air today, Mr. Barry Mazur, calling in from Nashville, Tennessee. How are you doing today, Mr. Mazur? Okay, glad to be here and, uh, you know, always like to take part in events around Jimmy. Now, uh, Mr. Mazur, you wrote Meeting Jimmy Rogers, and why don't you explain, you and I were talking off the air, why don't you explain to our audience how it is not a Jimmy Rogers biography? Yeah, that gets to be real clear to readers. Somebody, somebody said early on who thought that's what they were getting, that uh, how could you kill him off in Chapter 7? You know, there was most of the book to go. <laughs> because it's the, it's the life story of, of his music and how it mattered in so many different directions. Not the life story of the man. While he's alive, we talk about all the directions he took up. But uh, there's, a, there's a great biography of Jimmy Rogers by Nolan Porterfield, who we just lost last week died a week ago and that remains as a you know a kind of a monument so that was kind of intimidating if i was going to do a jimmy rogers book and take it up seriously this was something else something that had not been done hadn't been done with many popular entertainers at all which is track you know 80 years worth at that point of uh, what became of what he created what about jimmy's music in his legacy uh has has a profound impact on American roots music even in 2020. Like, what are ways you see Jimmy's musical influence on the music of today? I think, I I think uh, in the most practical way, the songs are really useful. They they cross a lot of borderlines that are that weren't so clear when he was around, but got set up later. I mean, you're talking about somebody. People do Jimmy Rogers songs in, yes, in country music, which he didn't even know he was in. But, yes, the father of country music. But, and in bluegrass, and in blues, and in jazz, and in rock and roll, and in folk. You can go on this way. Uh, where they're, they're all over the world they've been used, and they've traveled into other countries and, and cultures and different languages. So, you know, why is that? One of the, re- one of the reasons, I think, is, is exactly that they cross those borderlines. They're awfully useful. If you've, been, if you've been a very traditional bluegrass player, and all of a sudden you want to do some uh, newgrass rock and roll freak out, well, those songs are a kind of easy way to, to move over. Yeah. And, it's, and it's been true no matter what direction you wanted to move. And they, and they continue to speak to people, too, which is, which is another thing. They were, they, they were about very basic emotions and situations. They were of a time and place, but they kind of transcend that, too. And, uh, you know, they still work. You mentioned that, you know, Jimmy necessarily didn't know he was being put, being put in the country music box. It was a essentially a genreless time so early on in the music business. Uh, what about Jimmy and his music uh, made, uh, m- made the fact that he was able to do a little bit of everything and be kind of a chameleon of sorts? Um, why, why do you think he was able to appeal to such a broad audience in his time? I mean... His songs well, are. Easy. I mean, first of all, he was very charming. You know, <laughs> that, that goes a long way. I mean, people people like what they heard and saw. Um, but the other thing is, he wasn't even as even as the 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 market slots by different names were getting created, and his 
publisher, producer, and manager who discovered him, Ralph Peer, had a lot to do with establishing those those genres that are still with us to this, this day under one name or another. But um, he wasn't marketed. He was kind of also country. It was um, hillbilly music of the time was was so much kind of string band, breakdown kind of music and vocal harmonies. And he was clearly not those things. He was a southern vaudevillian who sang a lot of blues and yodel. And uh, he was marketed by his label RCA Victor, basically as what we now considered a kind of rootsy pop star. He's in advertisements to the industry along with uh, the pop stars of the day, not the not 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 the uh, the country acts. So that that's the first thing is that they and they did that because there was so so much more money and so much yeah. <laughs> more a wider audience for general hot pop music than there was for the niche of country, especially at that time. And remember, you know, he started in 1927 at Bristol. For the first few years, you were in the Roaring Twenties, and he sold he sold hundreds of thousands of records of each one. But the Depression comes, and every you know everybody sales, including his, go down. So any extra leg up and where you could go was a real bonus. Yeah, so to have a, to have a foothold in all sorts of different audience markets and all sorts of different pockets was definitely to his advantage because he not being pigeonholed opened up uh, more streams of, uh, of revenue uh, once and, the depression and we add yeah. something. Well, I would add something to that which has held ever since, which is that he presented himself and he was presented on the records in all these different ways. If you think of Jimmy Rogers in his cowboy suit, I mean, he's a guy from Mississippi, not a cowboy. If you see him in a bowler hat like a rounder gambler or a straw hat, you know, a vaudeville, all these different ways of appearing he could handle and make seem real. I always, I always point out that, you know, he's like the singing brakeman in his brakeman hat. Well, in his songs, sometimes he's the singing brakeman. And sometimes he's a hobo catching the train. The guy most likely to throw a hobo off a train was a brakeman. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, he has it both ways, every which way. He's a he's a rover and a rambler and a and a, and a you know rough and rowdy ways. And he's a family man with dear little girls, you know, a child, you know. I mean, he plays all these roles. And then the music, the the, the production of the music took on all these different sounds. There's things we hear now we'd recognize. Whoa, that's Hawaiian guitar, kind of, and that, and over there, that's kind of, that's like Western swing, and here's a cowboy song. That's jazz. This one's blues. Um, all that's true, you know. So all those sounds were in the music. All those ways of presenting them physically were in there, and that's kind of how the book works. But I think this also tells us something about while he lasted. There's a lot of artists since who have adopted those kinds of ways of doing business. <laughs> you you mentioned just the even the the imagery that the label used to market him to different audiences and different you know quote unquote genres and sounds. Uh, yeah, there's the the pictures of him as more of the gentleman uh, the, for vaudeville, the brakeman pictures, the cowboy pictures. It really shows a lot of the power of some of the earliest branding, if you will, in, in absolutely. American music. And they took work because if you see Jimmy in his natural state. He was, you know, he was, as the world knows, he was. Also, he also suffered with tuberculosis that was going to prove fatal through his entire five-year recording career and before that. Um, 
10 years. And, and he was a sickly guy in a lot of ways. And if you looked at him in his natural state with a pair of specs on and, and skinny and sitting there try, trying to sit up, um, he didn't seem like any of those, you know, badasses, but that was his image. <laughs> the Carter family might have been Sunday night, yes, yeah, Sunday morning, but he was Saturday night. <laughs> Absolutely. Sa Saturday night once you stumble in home, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned that Jimmy's battle with tuberculosis. How do you think that having tuberculosis impacted the music that he made? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, it's a, it's a really debilitating disease that had to affect everything that he did. Um, it affected a few things. The first is, as people know, um, he, he used that. A lot of times the audience couldn't be sure exactly how autobiographical exactly it was. They got to, they got to get the picture over time. But he did songs like TB Blues, etc., where he spoke directly to the subject. And that was, a, and that was, a, that, that was an epidemic. Funny to be talking about it this year. That was an epidemic that, that faced a lot of people. It, it affected people at every level of society, poor, middle class, and rich. But inevitably, what else is new, especially the people who were, you know, down and out and down home and have certain jobs that were, that were, that were more likely to pick it up, just like now. And uh, that, that connected him further with people. There was an awful lot of people in that situation or knew somebody who was. They would be a little, they would be a little elusive about it. And they wouldn't always do it. I mean, there were people in the audience say, you know, cough one up, Jimmy, meaning like a hemorrhage. <laughs> and and so people knew, and eventually the, the there was even a uh, a jacket, a very early kind of idea of a record album that would you could collect your Jimmy Rogers singles and put them in this album. So it was literally an album, didn't come with. But there was top jacket copy on this thing called America's Blue Yodeler, and in that thing, they they RCA went so far, and it was probably Pierre went so far as to say, well, you know, he had been ill, but. Uh, as long as you keep buying those records, he'll be fine, basically. <laughs> um, let's just put, let me, let, me, let me add it to this one. The TB was part of a bigger picture that I try to, to paint in the book. The subtitle of the book is How America's Original Roots Music Hero Changed the Pop Sounds of a Century. The TB thing added to this idea of a roots music hero, which by that I mean... Jimmy might have been like a pop star, but what was very obvious and said, and it was really obvious to everybody who heard him and understood him, which was broad, um, he came from a very specific place, very specific class, and he left those on the record. A, a guy like his friend Gene Austin, who was uh, just as Southern and even poorer than he was, you know, as soon as he could go uptown in a top hat and go to Hollywood, he did. Yeah. Jimmy, you know, he sang songs about Lord. You know, he, and the Southern accent, the Mississippi accent stayed, all of that. And so he became kind of an unelected representative of the people that he came from. And so they loved it as he got rich and had the mansion and the big Cadillacs and all of this. And we were going to see that again over the years, whether it was, you know, Hank Williams or Elvis or, you know, any number of other people in other kinds of music. It might be Bob Marley or I think, I think Dolly Parton has that. Yeah. There are some people who are so connected to where they came from that the people root for them to go as broad and popular and as wealthy as they become. And they're welcome back down home anytime they want. So that was part of who he was for a number of reasons. 
But I think things like his vulnerability to TB only added to that. You mentioned how the you know the working class or, or the common man is rooting for their success, as you said, to get all the accolades and the broadest appeal mm-hmm. possible. And there are some instances where you know that's that's a, that's very unique because sometimes some people grow to resent someone that becomes so successful that makes it out and feels like oh yeah, and I've never I, I don't find any, yes, I mean that's certainly true, right? Yeah. And I'm so I'm talking about a class of entertainers for whom that is true. Absolutely. A lot of times they say you're too big for your britches and you've sold out and you've gone to Hollywood, you've yeah. this and that. And uh, But there are some for whom it doesn't apply. I think I think it has to do with attitude as in, as, as in the performance, which it never turns those people where they came from into those people, into them. Yeah, It's always an us. And I think everything about the way somebody carries themselves is that. It's not just lyrics or something. But you know it, if he's there for you. And, he, and, and, and Jimmy would go out of his way. I mentioned an incident in the book where the very beginning of what was going to become the Dust Bowl tragedy in Oklahoma in 1931, uh, farmers were starving out there. Crops were failing. The Hoover administration would not come to their aid. And uh, Jimmy and Will Rogers, the kind of down-home comedian of the time, mm-hmm. went out on this tour across the whole middle of the country and raised tons of money and distributed seeds to all those people and they were there for them in this dire situation that's another kind of thing that made a permanent connection but he was there for us talking about the legacy of jimmy rogers on real roots radio today uh you, you mentioned the tale of uh, you know him and uh, will rogers going on that goodwill tour during the dust bowl what, what's another one of your favorite jimmy rogers anecdotes or stories oh the ones the one, the, the, some of the ones I love, which are, which are, you know, some of them are kind of, you know, apocryphal, like told of all, you know, it's like Elvis stories, because he was almost, he was virtually the Elvis of his time. So, I mean, you don't believe every Elvis story you heard either, right? You know, yeah. I mean, that's like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a, the one that always went around that was, pro- that was almost certainly not true, is that starving farmers would go into the store and ask for, ask for a bottle of milk and two Jimmy Rogers records, you know, it's like, <laughs> well, that story might have had them, but, but the, 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 generally speaking, like a bottle of milk was the last thing that sort of farmer needed. Yeah. So <laughs> just the stories are, you know, it's just like, it's a good story. But, but there are real ones where uh, a guy walks into a record store in Memphis, say, and, uh, and, he's, and, and, and he's bad-mouthing Jimmy along the lines you were just saying, oh, that Jimmy Rogers, he's really nothing. I didn't like him. And there's a guy sitting there with a guitar. He says, "Yeah, you're right." He's, he says, "You're right. He's no big deal, you know." And it's Jimmy Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> Those things really did happen. <laughs> I, I love the one you tell in the book about when they asked Jimmy to play at that uh, that the church oh, yeah. function, wanted him to do some of those good yeah. family friendly songs like the Carter Family. Would you mind sharing that tale with our audience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any uh, any attempt to, to 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 make Jimmy who recorded about two uh, clearly, two, three clearly religious songs out of his 112, and, and, and those were partly, yeah, when he recorded with the Carter family who, who majored in that. Um, yeah, he was, he was uh, performing before, I think, a seminary class in Florida, it was, and uh, they asked him if he, if, he, if, he knew any, if, he, if he knew any good spiritual kind of numbers. He said, no, but I got one you might like. 
and he played Frankie and Johnny, you know, which is like a, a woman's in a kimono shooting a guy in the gut in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in something close to a house of real repute. That, that, that was like, Jimmy was right in, right, right in their face. That was a song that was banned a lot of places in those days. So, yeah. Um, and then we'd laugh it off. We would laugh it off. And they took it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mr. Mazur, before I let you go today, what is, if, if you had to pick, if someone's never heard Jimmy Rogers' song before, which is, you know, pertinent or impossible, but if you had to pick one that you feel like exemplifies uh, the man and his music and who he was as a person, which well, song Well, it's very, very be? difficult for all the reasons we've been talking about. Yes, the sir. music goes in so many directions, and it's hard to find one that hits them all. But I think, if you want to say to somebody, this was the guy... Who did all that then you might as well go to his first massive hit record that made him a star uh, the next it was among the next things he cut after Bristol which was which was blue yodel number one T for Texas and that's been and that's been indelible I guess Buell Skinner blues comes close although it wasn't a hit in his day but uh, but um, T for Texas has the blues it has the it has the, the wit it has the you know it has um, the serviceable, if not exactly genius, guitar playing. It has all the elements that went into it. And it will surprise people to the degree to which, like, um, you know, kind of jazzy. People here as famous waiting for a train. They're a little surprised to hear a Dixieland band on there. But that's what we've been talking about. And you mentioned that it was such a smash hit. Uh, can you add some perspective on exactly how big of a hit T for Texas was yeah, when it was first yeah, released. Yeah, I mean, remember re remember that the population of the U.S. Was, was, was massively smaller than it is today in 1927-28. And even in the face of that, there were only a very couple of records that were certifiable uh, million sellers then. And one of them was like a Paul Whiteman jazzy record. But... Uh, T for Texas on multiple labels and multiple releases added up to something close to that. It can be a little difficult to track credibly. I've seen numbers for what he was paid for by Victor, but, you know, those songs got around. But through multiple releases in the first years, that one probably approached a million sales. And that was tremendous for those days. Which would probably similar to like ten million or something today with the way. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean I don't know how you could do the math, but the, it's it's uh, that's a major impact. Yeah, you know that's that, that's, that's Garth Brooks and, and level it was, sales. And it, was, it, it cut across all sections, although of course he sold more in the South. It cut across races. Tons of black people bought his records right along with Bessie Smith and Blind Lemon Jefferson. And, uh, and, it, and, and, it, and it eventually cut it, and it pretty quickly cut across borders because they were buying Jimmy Rogers records in England and in India and in Australia and soon places that didn't speak English. So, yeah, it got around. Where can folks go to learn more ab about your work on meeting Jimmy Rogers and also your book on Ralph Peer? Well, um, First of all, the, the, I'm inclined these days to say you can Google either one and it'll take you to pages that have them. My <laughs> Facebook page under my own name, and that's Barry Mazur, M-A-Z-O-R, has some links. But um, 
they are easily found, and, and they're in multiple forms by this point. You can get them paperback, you can get them e-books, but the peer book is even has what we call an enhanced peer uh, e-book, which has 40 of, the, 40 of the records he was responsible for over the years embedded right into the book. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's, well, he was, it was the right subject to do that on. But, uh, so, they're easily found. Anybody wants to find them. The, the, the Rogers book is Beating Jimmy Rogers. The Pure book is Ralph Peer and the Making of Popular Roots Music. And um, between them, I spent 10 years in that area. So I'm happy when anybody reads one. Well, th I'm honored to have you as a guest on the program today. Uh, the Meeting Jimmy Rogers book is, was is one of my favorite musical reads. My pleasure. I and by the way, I know you Mullins, your Mullins family has made some contributions to music along the way too. Oh, yeah. well, well, thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. It's been an honor. I I could. I could uh, visit with you for for hours, but I know that you're you're a busy man uh, with your own radio show as well. Yeah, well, that's on hiatus right now because of the the, the situation. But because we have live guests and, and it's in a restaurant that's closed, but uh, we'll get there. I am working on uh, writing projects. Meanwhile, so <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mr. Mazer. It's been an honor. My and pleasure. A pleasure. You are welcome. Everyone has time for good music. You got time to breathe. You got time for music. The Daniel Mullins Midday Music Spectacular. Weekdays, 10 to noon on Real Roots Radio.